So welcome to The Healthy Beast. Today we're talking about cannabis and I'm joined by one of Europe's foremost experts, Professor Mike Barnes. I've got, I'm going to start with one question. Do you think we're heading to a situation in the UK like in certain US states where cannabis is going to be fully legal? I think we're heading in that direction. Uh, my campaign and those of others to start with has always been about the medical use. That's my main interest. That's what I want to see. I want to see it available for everyone who needs it medically, free of charge, uh, on the National Health Service. But I think the general pattern, as you've said, in the American states, in Canada, I think other countries are heading that direction. After three or four years when the public's generally reassured that actually cannabis is remarkably safe, uh, you're not going to get people psychotic in the streets, I think probably we'll move towards a recreational uh, legalisation over the next three to five years, depending on which government gets in over that timescale. So what's standing in the way? I think still there's a sense of fear. I mean, the campaigns over the last 60, 70 years have been very effective at convincing the general public that cannabis is anti-establishment, it's not safe, it's like any other of the street drugs, one leads to the other, and that has been propaganda. And as you know, I'm not going to say cannabis is perfectly safe, because it isn't, but it's pretty safe. But the people have got that impression that it's uh, dodgy. Um, and I think that social stigma around it is real, still a real issue that stands in the way for some people. I think some of the polls now uh, indicate, well, certainly for medical use, the polls are 80-85% in favour of its use medically. I don't think, frankly, that's an issue any longer. Um, if you look at some of the polls for recreational use, it's about the 50-50 mark at the moment, perhaps just tipping in favour, 55-45. So I think in another few years when we've got more medical use around, people can see it's safe, it does some good, I think we'll move towards legalisation, to be honest. What people perhaps don't know is that it is actually legal now, yes, medically, but yeah. good luck trying to get it, I think is the... No, that's absolutely right. It's been legal medically since November 2018, um, but as you say, good luck trying to get it. Um, a doctor on the specialist register, that's basically a hospital consultant and not a GP, uh, can prescribe medical cannabis. And we've got very liberal laws in this country because that sort of doctor can prescribe it for any medical condition. It's not just for those things we have guidelines on like pain, sickness, epilepsy. It's for any medical condition. Um, so, in fairness, credit to the government for changing that law, OK, due to media pressure, uh, but they did change the law back in 18. Uh, but it's really not taken off in any way that I would like to see. There's been no National Health Service prescription since November 18, not one. Um, we've just started in the private sector. It's sad that it's only in the private sector, but there's about now about a 1,000 patients being prescribed in the private sector. Because you, you founded your own clinic. Yes. Which is did. the medical cannabis clinics. That's right. Um and oddly, perhaps as someone who started, uh, I hope to start a private clinic, I'm rather against, I've always been rather against private medicine. I'm a firm believer in the National Health Service and that things should be available free of charge. We have, we do, it's not a bit of a cliche, but we do have a, a world-class National Health Service. And I'd love to see cannabis, which is a really useful medicine, widely available to everybody. But it was clear that the National Health Service, and we can go through those reasons, uh, is not going to prescribe in the immediate future. And the only way people can get the the, uh, the medicine legally is through the private sector. So my thought was, well, why exclude people? Well, because they have to pay. It wouldn't be fair to say you can't get it because it's private. But also on a wider sort of campaigning level, the more people we get prescribed, those people will go back to their GPs, to their hospital consultants, um, and hopefully most of them will say, well, look, this is working for me, and that will help overcome, if you like, the cynicism, the scepticism of some of those doctors who then will put pressure on their own hospitals to start prescribing. So I like to, s to see those private patients as a sort of fifth column trying to persuade the reluctant National Health Service to get off, get off its backside and prescribe it. So you say no NHS prescriptions, but how many private ones have there been, do you know? Uh, it's about, uh, our clinics have prescribed about nearly 600 um, people. Uh, now, and we think we've got roughly 60% of the market. So probably, give or take, uh, there's been a 1,000 
people who've been prescribed medical cannabis. So around a thousand in just under two years. Well, in fairness, because those clinics had to be registered with a um, body called the Care Quality Commission, the CQC, that took a while to happen. So none of the clinics really got going till January this year. So for 2019, there was virtually nothing happening. Uh, So those thousand have been really in 2020. Despite COVID, the numbers are going up. We are increasing about 20 to 30% month on month. So if if people come for a private prescription, how much does it cost? Well, the cost is coming down, which is great. At first, it was ridiculously expensive. Um, uh, The average for an adult with pain, which is the most commonest reason to prescribe, starting in January, was something the order of £1,000 a month, just less, eight or £900 a month. Children with epilepsy, uh, because they need a bigger dose, those families were paying £2,000 plus a month. Wow. The cost now, because there's more choice, there's more prescriptions, more producers are in the country imported. Uh, the cost, the average cost now is something like four or five hundred pounds a month. And recently, there's a, a new initiative from an organisation called Drug Science, called the 2021 programme, aims to get 20,000 patients prescribed by the end of 2021, and they're capping the costs for certain conditions at 150 pounds a month. Now, I know 150 pounds a month for many people is still a lot of money. But it's much, much cheaper than it was. And it's getting towards reasonable wide accessibility, even in the private sector, which is great. So basically, at the moment, it's available, but it's available if you can pay. Yes. Are there other barriers to getting it? So if you go to a private clinic like yours, do you do the doctors ever say, no, you can't have it or... Uh, yes, indeed. What the, the Briefly, uh, the process is you can apply to us, yourself, online. Uh, we'll send a health questionnaire out for people to fill in, which is fairly comprehensive. We get their permission to get their notes from the GP, so we can confirm. Basically, we can confirm other medical details, but also that they're genuine people. Then you'll see the hospital specialist online at the moment. Telemedicine is, is now approved and probably will remain in approved, which is great news. The people often dis- seriously disabled don't necessarily have to get to a private physical clinic in London or elsewhere. So that's good. And the doctor will then check through that you've got uh, a condition that likely to respond to cannabis to start with, and you haven't got any contraindications, any reasons why you shouldn't prescribe. And there are things you should be cautious about prescribing for, like people with active uh, psychosis or schizophrenia, some heart conditions, some liver conditions. Overall, probably, um, they're rare, those contraindications. Somewhere around 90% of people who come to the clinic with a proper and genuine condition will end up with a prescription. And what form do they take it in? Uh, Interestingly, most at first, in the first few months, were oil. And they take that, drop it under the tongue, hold it under the tongue for a minute or so, and then swallow the rest. And that's good, and and that's still widely used. It's about 50-60% of prescriptions for oil. We are now, the, the proportion of people using flour is increasing. The flour, that's the actual cannabis flower head that you grind up and vape not that you can't smoke that's not legal but vaping is very good people often with pain prefer that because actually the vaping gives you a much quicker pain killing effect over a minute or so where the oil may take a couple of hours so if you've got a sort of background oil for your pain but you know that in certain times of the day or certain conditions or certain things you're going to do you get what's called breakthrough pain a sudden burst of pain you can overcome that with vaping so often for pain and sometimes other things like anxiety we'd use a background oil and a flower for vaping both both together so you can give them actual like cannabis bud that yeah it will come in a bag of uh, usually a five grams bag of flour sometimes ground up already for you you just put it in the vape machine sometimes you have to do a bit of grinding yourself but basically that's the same principle as people have to put in a joint but you know, we don't prescribe joints because the, the law doesn't allow that and in fact it's much safer and more controlled to vape in any case so you, so you can prescribe it but, you, but you're not allowed to say you, you can smoke this no and we actively say you know, we don't recommend smoking. The reason for that, A, it's illegal, uh, but the reason for that is that when you smoke, you, you tend to burn the cannabis at a higher temperature. So it's possible, although the evidence is very much lacking, uh, that TARS, carcinogens that you get in smoking a cigarette, will come off and there's a theoretical risk of lung cancer like the risk of smoking cigarettes. Actually, the, the evidence for that is very thin, um, almost certainly. Um, smoking a joint does not give a higher risk of lung cancer. But nevertheless, vaping, the cannabinoids and the terpenes, the thing that give it its smell, come off at lower temperatures than you would for smoking, and you don't burn off those tars, and so the risk of any sort of lung cancer from vaping is is zero, really. Okay, so if people have the money... 
cannabis is available to them. It is. But you said there are these um, specialist NHS doctors. So why haven't they, in the last, going on two years, why haven't they made any NHS prescriptions? Good question. I think there's several answers. One, I think, is actually a really important one, is lack of education. Doctors have never been trained or learned about cannabis or the endocannabinoid system, which is our own body's system uh, through which cannabis works. We produce our own natural cannabis, if you like, in our own brains. So there's a natural system called the endocannabinoid system. Um, But the doctors, certainly, even now in medical schools, those systems aren't taught for reasons that are beyond me, because it's a really established, it's not scientific pie in the sky it's a real scientific entity and why people aren't taught about the system and the, and the benefits of cannabis as a medicine is beyond me but the reality is that 99 percent of doctors have never been trained and of course you don't want your doctor prescribing something for you that he or she knows nothing about but you can overcome that with education as we are uh, trying through various teaching courses we're putting on at the moment so one is lack of knowledge two i think is the fear um, the stigma that's been associated with cannabis, you know, it's, it, for years people have thought it's no good, it shouldn't be prescribed, it's anti-establishment, it's anti-social, um, you know, it can't possibly be a medicine, go away, uh, this isn't real. We have that all the time. And then as the, um, the guidelines that have come out, I think they're hopelessly negative uh, from people like NICE and the Royal College of Physicians that have basically said there's not enough evidence to prescribe it, which I think is complete nonsense and have said so. Uh, but it's a brave doctor that A, says I do want to prescribe this and B, will go against those guidelines. They're not mandatory guidelines, but to going against them is a, as a brave jump. So with these guidelines, with these NICE guidelines, do they come out after the... They did. Um, yeah, when the, the government operating. changed the law, they asked some bodies, particularly Royal College of Physicians, the Paediatric Neurology Association, to produce immediate guidelines. They came out with the legislation, and then NICE took about another year uh, to deliberate, and their guidelines came out at the back end of last year. You'd want to ask them if, they, if these negative guidelines came out, well, what did you... Why, why was it made legal in the first place? Because it would seem to me, and you can yeah. confirm or deny this, but it would seem to me that they made it legal because of media pressure about a few sick children yes but they didn't want it to be legal for anyone else do you think that's fair to say i i would like to think that isn't the case my contact with the home office which was considerable before the law changed because we were getting a license a one-off license for a little boy called alfie dingley who was the first child to be prescribed in the uk so i dealt a lot with the home office and i have to say that's sort of fashionable to to beat up the Home Office or the Department of Health, they were really very helpful. Um, they actually lent over backwards to get that licence done. It took a long time because it was the first one. But actually, I didn't get the feeling that they want, they didn't actually want this to happen, certainly the Home Office. It may have been the case of the Department of Health. Um, I think they I think uh, I, they asked the Royal College of Physicians just to give some backup guidance. I think it was predictable what that guidance would have said. So the cynical, another cynic may say that they asked those bodies to produce guidance knowing they'd be negative, so knowing they wouldn't have the cost of getting it prescribed in the National Health Service. That's a cynical view. I'm not sure if I actually believe it. I would like to think they did it for the right reasons. So Um, so, so not to say... naive, but uh, I think so. So there are people saying that NICE just did it to save money because they knew there would be an influx of cases which i think to be fair there would be because there would be yes um i mean i i can say this anecdotally and you can you could maybe back it up with some evidence but i, I would assume that there are hundreds of thousands yeah. of people around the country who are More. who are yeah. buying illegal street cannabis yeah, the, the best estimates are there's about 1.3 million people in this country who use cannabis regularly illegally uh, for medical reasons and that's not the recreational population the total population of cannabis users regularly is about 3 million. So 1.3 million. So yes, if it was freely available at NHS for good medical reasons, yes, it would be a cost to it. But in my view, and I will pretty well guarantee, and it's easy for me to say because the studies haven't yet been done, uh, but you could introduce cannabis at zero net cost. Because um, if we take young Alfie, who was the first one to be prescribed, he was admitted to hospital 48 times in the year before cannabis, to the intensive care unit. You know, that's over a £1,000 a day. His costs to the NHS were huge. Um, 
Now, he may be a little bit of an exception. Most people say with pain, don't need to be admitted to intensive care units, certainly. But in those people, you stop prescribing or you'd certainly reduce the more expensive analgesics. For epilepsy, you reduce the prescription licensed medications. For anxiety, you reduce the anti-anxiety medications. You'd save people, say, with pain for physiotherapy costs, for example. Um, and you've got to offset those savings against the cost of the cannabis. But because the cannabis is cheap, um, ultimately, when there's a much bigger supply in the country, more people being prescribed, the costs will come down and down. It's, it is a very cheap plant, a weed, basically, literally. Um, and I think you can probably introduce cannabis into the National Health Service without actually costing the National Health Service a single penny because of those other savings. Now, in fairness, those studies to a health economic robustness have not yet been done, but I, I think that's what the results would be. It seems like there's an invisible hand trying to stop it happening. That's what that's yeah. sort of how it how it always always yeah. occurs to me. Because you mentioned Alfie Dingley, how how old was he at the time when he was six? He was six. Yeah, and um and the first to receive a prescription and first and only. But are there other children like him that need pre- prescriptions? And yeah, aren't there's about twenty seven thousand uh, children in the country who have um, resistant epilepsy. I'm not going to say all twenty seven thousand will need cannabis. Uh, my best estimate would be something like fifteen to 20,000 children who would benefit from it because their, their control of their epilepsy is not good or not at all uh, on the existing licensed medication. In the scheme of things, actually, the children with epilepsy are quite small in, re- in relation to the rest of the conditions that would benefit from, from cannabis and adults with pain or children with pain uh, is by far the biggest. But there's big numbers of these, of these adults and children. Does, do the NICE guidelines, do they take into um, account what people that can't get cannabis are using instead? So, yes, we mentioned the, the million or so um, buying street cannabis for, for medical reasons, but also there'll be people who go on the NHS and get other drugs, yes. so principally opioids, I suppose, which yes. cost a lot, I, I guess cost a lot of money and can yes. have terrible effects. I mean, they can have mm-hmm. deadly effects. Oh, there's, there's thousands of people here who die from an opioid overdose, deliberately or accidentally. You know, a lot of serious side effects. And other non-opioid pain-killing drugs are expensive, things like gabapentin, amitriptyline. Interestingly, NICE only last week uh, produced further guidance that basically said, and I have to paraphrase, uh, that doctors shouldn't prescribe licensed medication for chronic pain because there's no evidence that it really works, particularly opioids. We've known for a long time they don't work for chronic pain. They're very good for acute, post-operative pain. They don't work for chronic pain. So NICE, quite rightly, have come out and said, don't generally don't use licensed medications. Try other alternatives like acupuncture or mindfulness or exercise. The evidence base for that, I agree with that completely, but the evidence base for that is pretty thin. Uh, and NICE interestingly rejected cannabis because it didn't have enough double, what they call double-blind placebo-controlled studies. So they only looked at double-blind placebo-controlled evidence. So the evidence for which part is thin? The uh, for uh, the usefulness of mindfulness, acupuncture. Oh, so the, so the alternatives. The alternatives, if you like. The evidence is there. But it's certainly not on double-blind placebo-controlled studies. So they're now they're recommending those very good things to recommend without those sort of studies that are applicable to pharmaceutical medicine, but rejecting that uh, for cannabis, uh, which needs to have a different evidence base, a different view of how you assess it, observational studies, case studies, anecdotal studies. So you say with opioids um, that, that, that NICE is recommending that you don't prescribe them for long-term pain, but yeah. it, it seems to be that that's not changing very much is that is that right because it's yeah it's still widely prescribed and inappropriately prescribed because i mean i i have a i have a personal interest in this i had a very bad accident uh, 12 years ago and i wouldn't take it wouldn't take much persuading for a doctor that i'm in pain i've got the x-rays and the scars to prove it and for a long time i was on various given various different opioids tramadol oxycontin and so forth and my my personal experience was that they don't work very well for pain. That they're great po- in a post-operative setting. They're great. I think they're, so. They're very useful things to have. But long term, not only do they not work, you start to get these feelings that you're dependent on them. You start your yeah. judgment starts to change. Yeah. Your 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 mind becomes foggy. They seem to me like terrible things to to take. I and totally agree. And my my GP. Not only are they happy to were they happy to continue prescribing them, mm. I didn't even need to 
go in and see them. I just got on a repeat, repeat yeah. prescription. I would get a text from Boots, yeah. the chemist, and it was just have as many opioids as you want. I've still got a cupboard full of them. I stopped taking them one day yeah. because it was all all negative yeah. and and didn't and didn't and didn't at all help with the thing that they were prescribed for the pain. And then Absolutely. I was I was yes. I happened to be in Amsterdam with my family and I was in terrible pain. I tried cannabis before but saw it like a lot of people do with as as a negative recreational thing like drinking that you would do for fun but shouldn't do if you're a healthy person. I'm now a very healthy person and I was in terrible pain. I walked into a coffee shop, got some cannabis and the, the effect on the pain was Mm. incredible yeah i mean it is for many people it's remarkable uh, and it's not it's not an overestimate to say about 80 percent 80 to 90 percent of people who use cannabis for pain found it very helpful for the pain some it's remarkable and it basically cures the pain perhaps a little unusual what it does is damp it down it makes it more bearable it improves the other things around pain like less anxiety better sleep and that in then it engenders a sort of positive feedback that you, if you sleep better and you're less anxious about it, uh, then the pain also reduces. So, you know, cannabis works in lots of different ways, but it, overall it really is very helpful. And the big thing from a doctor's point of view about it is the side effects of cannabis are very, very mild indeed. If you prescribe it sensibly and not to those people that shouldn't have it, like those with active schizophrenia or psychosis. Uh, so why, uh, Nice said, oh, there's not enough evidence for it, when you compare it to what else there is around, the f for which is dangerous, um, is beyond me. It is quite beyond me. They are simply wrong. There's not arguable. They are, their guidelines are unhelpful and wrong. And if you, if you don't believe me, look at the evidence for 50 countries that now use cannabis uh, medically. All but one uh, island, other than the UK, allow it for prescription of pain. So 48 countries including this part of the States, Canada, Australia, Germany, um, New Zealand, all allow prescription of pain, but we don't. If you're not in one of those groups, you mentioned the high-risk groups, but are there negative aspects for other people taking them? So you mentioned Alfie Dingley, for example, presumably taking a very high dose, a small boy taking yeah. a very high dose. Yeah. And it's, and it's very helpful with his medical condition, but do you see side effects in a child like that we're taking such a no. high dose i think it's important at this point to emphasize that um there's two main components to cannabis plant i mean there's a hundred plus minor components but the two big components that we know about and are in high amounts in the plant are thc which is the with the cannabinoid that gets you high and if you buy cannabis on the street that's got high amounts of thc and not much else in it because that's the point you want people want to buy it on the street to get high the other component is CBD, and we hear a lot about that now in the health food shops. It's legal and widely available, CBD, cannabidiol, um, and that doesn't get you high. So generally speaking, for medical prescription, what we do is start with a prescription of a high CBD cannabis variety, and that can be painkilling in its own right, for example, and certainly helps with epilepsy in its own right. And then sometimes, particularly for pain, you'd in slowly but surely increase the THC component. Uh, but because CBD counteracts the effect of THC, even with high, high amounts of THC, you don't get high. So too many highs in that sentence, but you know what I mean? So take uh, Alfie, and I know his uh, mother and father wouldn't mind me talking about him. Uh, he takes a high CBD, but he's now supplementing that with, uh, put a number on it, about 10, 15 milligrams of THC. Now, if a little child took 10 milligrams of THC with nothing else, they probably would get high from it, but it doesn't at all because the CBD counteracts that effect. So, you know, it's the same plant, but actually, medical use of cannabis is a very different thing from recreational use of cannabis. Going back to your question, the evidence, there is little evidence, but very unconvincing, that high THC in developing adolescent brains can be damaging. In the short term, impairment of memory and such like, and a little bit of evidence in the longer term. I think the evidence is very unconvincing, I have to say, but there is there. And I think you would never, we, we can't prescribe recreational cannabis, but you'd never recommend it to a, a developing adolescent brain. But for the medical use, with that CBD in it as well, there is no evidence at all, not any evidence, that that combination damages the developing brain. So people like Alfie um, have really no serious risk of any significant long-term side effects. The, this um, proliferation of CBD over the last couple of years, I mean, it's massive on the health yeah. food market now. Um, it's a supplement. I know um, from fellow sports people that it's been very, it's something that's very helpful that 
they yeah. use for inflammation and so forth. Yes. And, and a lot of them who were taking a lot of um, ibuprofen type mm. medicines before, which we now found, find out can be can be very damaging in long term use, are using CBD yeah. instead. But it seems also that because that we've had this discussion when you when you read articles about cbd it says oh it doesn't have thc and so it doesn't get you high and it seems that the risk is that the narrative has become there's this is the bad bit and this is the good bit yeah so thc is is as as cbd has has become very wi- widely used it's almost though, as though thc has been demonized more because we've taken the bad bit out which which makes you yeah, high. I think that's that's partly true, but and we shouldn't forget. Okay, most of the side effects come from THC. In that sense, it's the bad bit. Uh, but actually, THC is a very very useful medicine, as we've said already. It's pain killing. Uh, it's uh, in smaller doses. It's anticonvulsant. It helps. There's some evidence that it's anti-tumor. Now, the evidence for using cancer is fairly thin, but in animal models, it's uh, very useful to kill cancer cells. It does it, uh, it does a lot of other things. It's anti-inflammatory, particularly THC. THC is, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, sure, I think there's that bit of a tendency, because CBD is legal and widely available and widely talked about. Uh, we shouldn't forget that from a medical point of view, you really need both. You need, okay, you might start with CBD or high proportion CBD, but the benefit, of, there's no doubt in my mind that the benefit of the medicine is from the full plant, so-called entourage effect. You get some benefit from a, 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 a medicine, just CBD, but the bigger benefit is clearly from a full plant extract. So you've got CBD, THC, and 100 plus other minor cannabinoids, as they're called. All of them individually have medical properties. You've got the terpenes, which give the cannabis its characteristic smell, and all of those so far tested have medical properties. So the whole lot together in the full extract plant is clearly much better as a medicine than the individual isolates, if you like, the CBD by itself. And unfortunately, the stuff you buy over the counter in health food shops, uh, to moraine to legal, really just to be has to be virtually pure CBD with a, only a tiny amount allowed of THC in it. Well, I know even some of the CBD companies they they they're showing off about how their their product is good because it has zero THC. You yes. know, we 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 use so uh, the blurb of one of the, one of the premium ones sent. They use um, hemp only, so there's zero. THC and they yeah. and they they're using this as a as a way of promoting their product. So it's I think that's adding to this this view that it oh, great it's got no THC right. and I've got the good stuff. Yes, and most of the C, virtually all the CBD products over the shelf are from hemp. Now hemp is cannabis. Uh, it's the same variety, but it's been bred over the many years primarily for its um, uh, industrial uses. It's a very strong fibre for paper, for cloth, for building materials for animal feeds. But in cannabinoid terms, it's predominantly CBD and hasn't got that richness of the full plant. So, yeah, there are some medical benefits from the -the over-the-counter hemp-based CBD products, but the far better medical benefit is from the full plant extract, which will have a tiny bit of THC, and that tiny bit tips it over the balance to being an illegal product unless it's been prescribed. For people who have grown up with all the propaganda, and I think that's all of us because you know it goes yeah. back. It goes back. I don't know to the early twentieth century, and we're still feeling the effects now. You know, thirties, yeah, yeah. People worried about reefer madness and all this kind of thing. Yeah. So we're all we all suffer a slight hangover from those from from that propaganda. What could you say to someone who still who still feels like mm, it's a drug? It's it's dangerous. This one you always hear, oh, you know, you start with cannabis and you work towards other things. Well, I think there's the emotive argument, but there's the, the actual argument against it is simply not true. Cannabis is not a gateway drug. It's gateway only because it's illegal. And you go to a dealer on the street and the dealer may well say, or oh, try this as well to get you a bit more uplifted tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also you don't know what's in the stuff on the street necessarily. They can be laced with all sorts of other things. Um, so it's much, much safer not to buy it on the street. Um, and it's, so it's not a gateway drug. Uh, we just have to go through the evidence, the very simple evidence, that it is remarkably safe, except for one or two or three um, very small-scale reasons why someone shouldn't have it. And, you know, we've listed those already, just two or three things, of immediate heart problem, the psychotic part problem, um, probably liver problems to an extent, but otherwise, it's remarkably safe, and there's never been any evidence otherwise 
it's all been uh, largely propaganda generated in the states in the 1920s and 30s and is still there in the psyche if you like it's just simply wrong it seems to me with politicians that they that there are enough people still worried about that those aspects albeit made up though they are they're still worried enough to not want to be the one who yeah. puts up their hand and and pushes for it you know there's never been you know the occasional apart from the occasional liberal liberal democrat there's never mm-hmm. really been any enthusiasm from a prominent politician for for legalization yeah, i think i think that's right and it doesn't really fall past classic party lines part of you will think uh, that the Conservative Party will be against it and the Labour Party will be for it. That's not true at all in re- real politic terms. There's been very much cross-party support for the medical. I mean, the, the chairman of the all-party parliamentary group on medical cannabis is Sir Mike Penning, who was a Home Office minister conservative, with support from others like Tony Antoniazzi from the Labour Party. I was very disappointed with, with the Labour Party front bench under Corbyn, who were really never really came off uh, sort of fence about it, never really said what we're going to do about it. I think, uh, yeah, I'm drifting into politics, but my guess is they didn't want to be seen to be soft on drugs, um, the Labour Party. The Conservatives have always had that feeling that cannabis is not right. But there are very prominent Conservatives now who are for it, and prominent Labour. I mean, Lib Dems, uh, the Scottish Nationalists, applied the Green Party have always been for it, and even we've had quite a lot of support. There was cases in Northern Ireland from the DUP, so it's very much cross-party support. I think if it went to a free vote in Parliament now, well, certainly medical's done with; it doesn't count anymore. If recreation went to a free vote in Parliament, I think probably it would be just about pass. But it's not going to go to a free vote in Parliament anytime soon. Why not? Just. I think it's not high on anyone's agenda at the moment. They don't see it as a particular vote winner. And I think there's still that feeling in the big parties that actually this could be a bit of a vote loser. I think we need more polls that show that 50, 55, 60, 65% of the population are behind it. That's what happened in New Zealand. New Zealand are about to go to their poll uh, to see if they want to legalise cannabis for recreational use. And that polls started off about 45% for. Now the thoughts are it's about 55% for, so it's likely to pass. As, and that, I think, is because medical cannabis was introduced over that period of time, and people you know, knew relatives, they knew friends, uh, they knew it helped, and they said, well, this isn't really as bad as it's been made out for the last decades. Um, what's the harm? And it is safer than alcohol, it's safer than smoking cigarettes. What's the problem with this? And I think we'll get to that point in the UK. We're generally a bit more conservative, and I think we'll get to that point in two, three, four years' time. So do you think we'll end up with, you know, cannabis cafes and dispensaries like they have in Holland or the US? Or Yeah, I mean, there will clearly be controls. I don't think we'll ever be quite as liberal as, as um, some parts of the world have been. And I think... I think there will be, and quite rightly, I would support controls like a cap on the level of THC rather than really, really high levels of THC, which can be dangerous. I'd like to see some regulation in the market, clearly, so you've got good quality product, it's consistent, uh, you know what's what's on the label is what's in the bottle, all those sensible regulations. Uh, it's not got heavy metal, it's not got pesticides. Clearly, every, every, obviously, sensible, safe prescribing. Um, and I'd like to see actually what what happens in parts of the states where you've got very good quality um, shops with very knowledgeable people who can help you and guide you through what can be a very confusing array of cannabis for just two and a half thousand cannabis varieties. Um, you know, what would you want? What are you trying to use it for? Uh, and can help you through it. And I think actually, you know, all we're doing at the moment in the UK is with talks like this and talks in the press and talks on the news and the radio we're making people much more aware of the usefulness of cannabis that's great that's really good and people say well i've got this bad back pain and i don't like opioids i think i might try cannabis so they go to their gp and they realize they can't get cannabis on national health service and then they realize well i can get it privately but actually i can't afford it so what do they do then they go to the black market to get it so all we're doing at the moment is driving people uh, to criminalise themselves and go on the black market. That's all we're doing at the moment, unless we open up the National Health Service to sensible, safe, knowledgeable prescribing. 
And there are so many there are so many problems, obviously, with pushing them into this criminal market. But one of them seems to be, and this is this is anecdotal from me, but maybe you could confirm whether you think it's true. Just like with alcohol prohibition, we know that people would start making ferociously strong moonshine. It seems to be in the, in this country that because it's illegal, people want to get the strongest product yeah. they can get. If you walk around the streets of Amsterdam and you smell that potent, super strong mm. skunk weed coming around the corner, nine times out of ten, it's it's a group of English lads you'll see out mm. there on holiday. Because the, the locals, if if you're if you're offered a menu of everything and you're yeah. a fairly sensible person, you, why would you want to go and annihilate yourself? Oh, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, a lot of people who are recreational users use it because they just want to chill out in the evening. They want a mellow evening. They want to just sit at home and relax. Others use it to be in the daytime to be more creative, if you like. So it's, uh, I, I think, you're absolutely right. There will be some people who just want the high, and that's it. But uh, most of the most users don't want that. They just want to use its other uh, relaxing, sedating, help sleeping, wellness, uh, mild painkilling, reduced anxiety, all those properties that for, many people use alcohol for. And the people, there's evidence, of course, that if you introduce cannabis, you reduce alcohol sales by about 25%. You reduce smoking by about 25%. Yeah, there's evidence already from the US, isn't there, that the drinking levels come down, violence comes down. Absolutely. I mean, if we don't... We see the violence in our streets on a Saturday night. If you introduce cannabis, you're not going to have um, people smoking weed, beating each other up on a Saturday night. They're going to be at home relaxing on the couch. Well, I've tried... Yeah, I've tried to explain this one to people that don't know the UK mm. very well. There, is, there are loads of lovely little towns that you can drive around and go and visit in the day, and you think, oh, this is a pretty little medieval village or whatever. Mm. And come 9, 10, 11 o'clock on a Friday, Saturday night, it's a bloodbath. And it's, yeah. it's not a nice thing to admit about your own country, but the, the drinking and the violence that goes along with it is a, mm. is a huge blight on, on towns up and down the it country. Yes. And when you're getting to that more sensible point of your life when you no longer like to be involved with those things you just you just want to you, you just want to avoid going there and this isn't some this isn't something that only happens in in whatever you may think of as the seediest worst areas it's yeah. it's lovely little market towns that look look yeah. that look beautiful during the day and then later at night everyone's bottling each other i mean it's it's no it's no joke and yeah. if if you i mean you can't you can't eliminate one with the other but if those people were stoned instead of drunk it just wouldn't be the it wouldn't happen it just oh, wouldn't absolutely happen. right i think that's absolutely right now i've never i've never publicly made a case for recreational cannabis because i i didn't want to if you like muddy the waters for the medical case and, and my when i started this journey my only interest really was to get medical cannabis for all its positive properties uh, more freely available. And I've never, I didn't want to muddy the waters by a recreational, which is a perfectly good socio-political debate. But I honestly think that if the NHS continues to be stupid about it and reluctant about it, you're going to drive more, more good people with real medical problems to the criminal market. And if that continues, then I will be all for legalising cannabis in order to get that medicine to them. I'd rather they got to them through a proper, sensible, prescribing, knowledgeable doctor route uh, so you don't give it to the wrong people for the wrong reasons. But I can see the benefit, frankly, of making it legal if the NHS is simply going to you know, bury its head in the proverbial sand and not prescribe it. I, I know what you mean about muddying the waters, because I think, I think the fact that people, people with no medical condition choose to use it because it's nice, mm. because they enjoy it, I think that makes people think, well, it can't be a medicine. Because, you know, there's this kind of yes. overlapping thing. Well, if, you, if, you, if something... But that seems almost puritanical in the view that, well, if something's nice, you shouldn't do it. Yes, well, and this thing that if you take cough mixtures, the, the better it is, the worse it tastes. Yeah, you know, exactly, medicine exactly. Medicine has to be not very nice for you. But it's a complete nonsense. I mean, you know, cannabis is the prime example, isn't it? It can be very pleasant to take. And that in itself has a therapeutic effect. If you've got pain and you're more relaxed and you sleep better and you're less anxious, even if it had no painkilling effects, that would be beneficial. It does have painkilling effects on top of those things. So it can be a, a really positive experience as well as being a positive medicine. I mean, you can't, and you can't really, you can't really draw a firm line between those things, can you? Because no. if you're, in, if you've, if you've, experience chronic pain simply not being in pain 
or being in less pain is itself enjoyable. And also the thing about pain is it's physical and it's psychological as well. Because if you're in if you're in chronic pain, your mood will be low. I mean, there's no there's no way that it won't be. Yeah. So I mean, it seems it just seems terribly unfair that because of indecision, fear, not wanting to upset people, yeah. you're you're pushing people into criminality or you're pushing them into taking a, a drug that yes. could kill them. Exactly. I think that's the stark reality of the situation. I agree with you. Was there a kind of light bulb moment for you in your career when you when you saw cannabis as this, or has it always been a focus for you? Oh, it hasn't. Well, it's a long time ago now. It was about 20 years ago when I was uh, a neurologist by background and I was writing multiple sclerosis clinics. And people were beginning to come and chat to me in the clinic and say, I've now tried cannabis. Uh, of course, multiple sclerosis can be a very painful condition. It can be associated with a lot of muscle spasm, so-called spasticity, which is not easy to treat. Uh, and I said, well, this is really helpful. So I just very informally asked everyone coming to the clinic and about 50% of the multiple sclerosis people coming to an un- unfiltered NHS clinic in Newcastle were using cannabis. So I thought, well, yeah, that was perhaps a light bulb moment. For heaven's sake, there must be something to this because these are people who are severely disabled. They're criminalising themselves. It's going to be very difficult to get for them. Um, but they're using it. And they won't be using it unless it was helpful. Um, and then by chance, I was asked by the a company called GW Pharma to help with the development of their f- the first ever licensed cannabis medicine called Sativex, which is a spray licensed f- just for those people with multiple sclerosis and spasticity. Uh, so that was it. wasn't more of a light bulb moment. It was well, I think that that was a light bulb moment in the clinics. But then slowly my knowledge increased and my interest increased. And when I stopped being a neurologist about three or four years ago, retired from that, I really wanted to devote myself then to seeing what I could do about getting cannabis um, more widely accepted and more widely available. For anyone listening, is is there anything that people can do in terms of supporting the push to... Yeah, um, that's an interesting... This has been an interesting medical movement because it's been one driven by the customer, by the patient. Um, we've got some really knowledgeable people. I mean, again, take Alfie Dingley, uh, his, his mother Hannah Deacon is one of the most knowledgeable people about cannabis medicine in this country. She knows a lot more than 99.9% of all doctors. And that's the same with other parents of uh, children with epilepsy, adults with pain. They know an awful lot more. Because there's lots of interesting, useful, accurate um, social media fora now where you can learn about these things. There's teaching courses now. So I would encourage people who have some of these conditions who are just interested, learn about it, and then go to your GP, go to the hospital consult, and say, I've got this condition, and why don't we try cannabis? And not take the... You'll get no as an answer. But don't take no as an answer. Say, I think this is right. What's wrong with it? And they, doctors, I, I know, I heard many, many stories, will come out a lot of nonsense. You shouldn't use this. It's just placebo. It's going to drive you mad. All, all sort of complete reefer madness type nonsense comes back. But challenge that. I would encourage a sort of patient revolution movement to push the medical profession with all its conservatism into doing this. And I know there are doctors in NHS who would be for that and would be happy to prescribe it if they've got the bottle, I suppose, to go to their hospital and try to say, in the best interest of this patient, I want this prescribed. Whatever you say, that's what I want to happen. Okay, so you go to your GP, say you've got chronic pain like I have, you go to your GP, you say, you you give them your history, you say you want this, they definitely say no. But you, but you can then get referred on to somebody else yeah. who can and say no, or who almost have to say. Well, the GP would have to say no because the GP can't at the moment prescribe it. Okay, so they actually so can't. They can't. They can follow up and give follow up prescriptions once it has been prescribed already by a specialist. Um, so a GP would would have to say, "Well, I'm Friday. I can't give it to you because that's legally correct." Uh, but they can refer you and should refer you to a relevant NHS. In your case, say a pain specialist and go and make that case to them. Now, the pain specialist is likely to say, uh, reasonably, have you tried X, Y, and Z licensed medicines? And that's not unreasonable to try licensed medicine before cannabis, which is an unlicensed medicine. Uh, but once you've tried those licenses, and sometimes they work, great. Uh, once you've tried those, then what we hear so often is the pain specialist say, well, that's it, I can't do anything else for you now. And that's the point where you say, right, well, what about cannabis? Here's the evidence for it. It's available in Canada, it's available, blah, blah, blah. Here's the evidence, here's the publications. I want it to be prescribed for me. And just, you have to be, I'm afraid, pushy. 
pushy. Yeah. So a kind of patient revolution. Do you think that many yes. people have been doing that, have been going to the GPs, or just that they yes. know that they'll get a no and don't bother? I think many people will know they're going to get a no and don't bother. Uh, there's some who still have that view of doctors as uh, sort of demigods, and if the doctor says no, he must or she must be right. Uh, I think we do need more of a... Because of the reluctance and, and conservatism of the medical profession, I think we need more of a patient movement to say this isn't good enough. I want this prescribed. I think it's in my best interests. Tell me, why not? What about if someone gets a private prescription, you know, so gets it through a doctor, gets it through a clinic like yours, it works for them, and then their economic circumstances change, and a lot of people's economic yeah. circumstances sadly are changing at the moment, and then they go to their GP yeah. and say, look, I've had this prescription, it really helped, but I can no longer afford it. How do you think that conversation would go? I, mean, I think I mean, the advantage, and as I said earlier, right at the beginning, I'm not a great favour of private medicine. I think it's a great shame that these people are having to go to the private sector. But the advantage of that, if you can afford it for a few months, go and do that. Um, and then you've got even more evidence. So well, you, in the first day, you'd have to go on theoretical evidence, you know, the studies that are available, and there are plenty available for use in pain. But then... If you've got personal evidence, not only are the studies, but for me, I've tried it, I've had it for three months or four months or six months, it's really worked, and now I want you to prescribe it for me. That's even stronger evidence. Um, the, the doctor can't say, well, all those studies don't mean very much. He's got, he or she has got to sit there in front of you and say, and disbelieve you, really, I don't think it has worked for you. Now, some will still say that. Others will hide behind the fact that their hospital trust will be reluctant to prescribe it. But I, cost shouldn't come into it. Matt Hancock has said publicly that cost will not limit the prescription of cannabis. Has he? Yes. And yet... At the, there uh, when he said it. Um, yet, at the moment, because of the guidelines, um, the doctors don't get over that barrier. They think, I can't go against the guidelines. Well, actually, you can go against the guidelines. We need some braver doctors to say... This is right. I am aware of the guidelines, but for my patient who's already tried it, perhaps in the private sector, I want them to use it. Please fund it. Go to the hospital trust, which would have to pay for that unlicensed medicine. If they say no, then that doctor, I think, needs to take it up with, with the Department of Health, really. But fund it. Matt Hancock said he'd fund it. So he said, wait, how long was this recently? It was about a year ago in a meeting in the House of Commons. So he said he'd fund it and nothing's happened? Well... Uh, deliberately or not, um, there's very, very few hospital trusts. I know two or three doctors who have got to the point, so I want to prescribe this, and they've been stopped from prescribing by the hospital trust. Either because the hospital trust says I'm not, we're not going to go against the NICE guidelines, which I don't agree with, but that's one reason. I know certainly of two cases where it's got past that point and the funding body has said, no, we can't afford it. Uh, so, and as far as I know, that didn't go to the Department of Health. So actually, I don't think that system's been tested, that a hospital trust says, we'd like to pay for it, please, NHS England, or whichever body it is, please fund this. So, so that should be tested. So the trust needs to go to the... But I would think, well, if it's, let's say it's in England, uh, then the trust would need to approach their contacts in NHS England, um, and there are funding mechanisms for special into special medicines if you like uh, and they should test that system so NHS England would then have to say no we can't do it and then it's a political matter of saying well the Secretary of State said you would then we come back to more media pressure okay so we need to find a way of pushing it back to Matt Hancock to get to call him on this thing he said yeah but to do that you've got to get some of the doctors to agree that it's the right thing for their patient and some of the trusts to agree with their doctors that it is the right thing for their patient and they're prepared to go against the nice guidelines, which are only guidelines and are wrong. You say some of the doctors. I mean, you'd only really need one and one trust, wouldn't you? You would. You would need a test case. You need yeah. one doctor in one amenable trust that says, OK, we're aware of the guidelines. We go along with our doctor. We trust our doctor. He thinks it's the best interest of the patient. We want to fund it. So here, here's my case. Fund it. OK, I'm going to give it a try. Good. Because um, it works. I, w I want to ask you a little bit about the the police's attitude to this because yeah. I think probably a, a lot of them turn a blind eye. But there was mm. there was a terrible case I think last year where um, 
her grandmother who had MS was growing her own and she got arrested and dragged through the courts. She finally got, they finally... It was in Cumbria, I think, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, she was finally acquitted. But it seemed like yeah. such a terrible case where, she, you know, even if you don't agree that taking cannabis is a medicine, even if you don't, don't agree with all the things you've been saying, and there will be some people who still, for whatever reason, feel like that, it's a person taking something on her own... Mm. not harming anybody, not even mm. smoking it, just just doing it to make her life better. And to arrest somebody like that and drag them through the courts seems, I mean, inhumane in the oh, extreme. It seems totally ridiculous to me. And there are some police um, commissioner areas, uh, Durham being one, I think one in Cornwall and in Wales, that have publicly said, uh, we are not going to prosecute people for um, possession of cannabis for personal use. We've got better things to do, police time. Well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you, you? You would hope so. And it cannot possibly be in the public interest to prosecute someone for growing a small amount of their own cannabis if they can't get it from elsewhere or can't afford it from elsewhere for their own medical condition. You know, if the law... I can understand if people are growing a lot of it and selling it to others, that's against the law and it's the police's job to uphold the law. But if you're growing it in your back garden for your own medical use because you can't afford it to do it properly, if you like and it certainly cannot be in their interest or the public interest to prosecute that sort of person. But there, there must be just a few, I don't know whether it's certain police departments or individuals out there who are evangelical in my mind the wrong way, but for some reason just want to hunt down, yes. hunt down lawbreakers. If look, um, but if you look at the police um, statistics um, area by area, some where there's virtually no cannabis prosecutions and others with really quite remaining quite high prosecution levels. And that doesn't seem fair to me. It, it is, I'm sorry, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's just a postcode lottery um, of uh, where you live will depend on how much, how actively the police will prosecute you for possession. And that's not right. We need. That's why I think we need to look at the law nationally so it's applied in whatever format Parliament thinks it should be applied equally across the board. Okay, fantastic. So something pe- something people can do. They can support some of these organisations, yeah. But get to your GP and push I think for that's it. The way. I think it's get to your GP, um, go through if need be the license the license route to make sure that a proper licensed uh, medication isn't going to be helpful for you. And they will be for many people, of course. I'm great, uh, but if it doesn't, then say I want to try cannabis. Here's the evidence for it, and if you can get the actual evidence for you to go to a clinic, uh, try it for three or four months, privately, sadly, and then but you've really got then a strong case to go back to the GP, go back to the specialist, say, look, here's the evidence, and here for my evidence, it works for me, now prescribe it. Fantastic. Well, let's hope you're right in the point you made at the beginning, that we're moving towards a situation where it's available to those that need it, and not just those who can afford it. Yes, I hope so. Professor Mike Barnes, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again to Professor Mike Barnes. See more of what he's doing on Twitter. He's at MikeBarnes29. And Hannah Deacon, Alfie Dingley's mum, is at Han Seizure Mum. H-A-N Seizure Mum on Twitter. Healthy Beast is at Healthy Beast Podcast on Instagram. Thank you very much. (laughs) 